This is such a good passage, and you are going to really enjoy being part of it this morning. Today's meal takes place at the house of a prominent Jewish religious leader, and it took place immediately after synagogue worship on a Saturday the Jewish day of rest. So you might immediately think that this is the dynamic equivalent of Sunday lunch at the vicarage. Uh, But there are some important differences. Firstly, Jesus was being very carefully watched. He wasn't invited as a welcome guest or someone worthy of respect. He was being examined. Now, if you remember, Jesus, he didn't have any formal training Uh, He had, obviously, a huge following, an undeniable charisma, but he was an upstart. He hadn't asked anybody. He wasn't acting under anybody else's authority. And so the synagogue leader sees Jesus as a threat, and as a threat that he wants to evaluate and examine. Secondly, meals in Jesus' culture were more public than in ours. Now, especially in wealthier homes, they were sort of semi-public events. And so our nearest equivalent to what uh, Hilda's just read for us wouldn't be a dinner at one of our houses, but it would be going out to a restaurant. And remember the last time you went out to the restaurant, you, you might have spent the whole evening eavesdropping on the couple who are two tables away because they're having an absolutely fascinating conversation and it's much more interested in what you're talking about or there might be a marriage proposal or a big argument or someone might be taken ill but there might you'd be ready if you went out to a restaurant for some drama to take place in and around you that might affect your enjoyment of the meal uh, and whereas at home on the whole you are in control And so the drama might be that you burn the chicken or the dog's sick, but actually, uh, most things, you're not going to get external things coming to upset uh, your evening. Uh, So what we have just read isn't what we'd like you to expect at Itchin Kitchen, which is relaxed and informal and it's laugh a lot evening out. This, this meal in Luke 14, this is tense. This is best behavior. This is, there are wider conflicts swirling in the background, but at least at the start of the meal, everybody is on their best behavior. And we read in verse 2 that included in the crowd, but almost certainly not actually an invited guest, was a man described in older Bible versions as having dropsy. Now, it's not a word we really use now, and our new international version describes him as suffering from abnormal swelling of the body. I think it's some sort of excess fluids. Uh, Maybe there's a distended stomach. Uh, There is some evidence that religious leaders at the time categorized this as a sign of immorality. I mean, poor chap. So, so So therefore, in theory, they might have been thinking that his illness was his fault. Essentially, he'd done something wrong, and this was a punishment. You will probably know that healing on the Sabbath by Luke 14 is already a contested area between Jesus and the Pharisees. They had sparred on this issue before. And this healing on the Sabbath was never accidental. Jesus seemed to court controversy by publicly healing people on the Sabbath, enraging 
the Sabbath leaders, the religious leaders who took Sabbath observance very seriously. And they saw it, in one sense, rightly as a test of orthodoxy. For them, it was a gateway issue to a deeper debate about the basis on which we are right or we are on good terms with God. So Jesus asks, uh, knowing that all these people are there watching him and evaluating, he asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He hits the question head on with a deeply divisive either or question. Now, as Christians, we love asking these either or questions, although we're never quite so keen on answering them. Uh, But we we see here a quiet strength and determination in Jesus, a a strength that because of the importance of this man and the importance of the issue, that overrules any duty of respect for his hosts and his surroundings. The religious leaders have painted themselves into a corner so that they are now against the idea of someone being healed of a disease on the Sabbath. And Jesus is just wanting them to see this can't have been what God intended with his gift of Sabbath rest. And yet these religious leaders have sort of painted themselves into a corner. So the dinner party goes very quiet with Jesus' question, is it lawful or isn't it? In the same way that a couple of years ago, just, you know, imagine you're just into the entrees at the dinner party and someone says, so, Brexit. And just, you know, what, you know, what would happen? Everyone stares at their meal. Uh, the, the, this air kind of gets sucked out of the room. No one speaks. Nobody is going to say it's against the law to heal on the Sabbath. And they probably have an inkling of what's coming next, that Jesus is going to heal this man, which he does tenderly and authoritatively curiously sending him on his way, so sparing him the rest of this mortifying dinner party. Jesus follows this up with a further skewering of the watching, doubting guests. Jesus confronts them head on with their own hypocrisy by observing that if one of their children, or to be honest, even one of their livestock, fell into a well on the Sabbath, they would not hesitate. They would pull them out. They wouldn't debate it. They wouldn't pray about it. They would simply think, this is my child. This is a well. A well is not a very friendly place for a child. Let's get the child out. Jesus is saying, I see this man here. I see him. He's made in God's image. He's loved. He's valued. Why would I refrain from offering him healing and compassion? On today of all days, the day of rest, the day of worship. And for a second time, there is again silence. It's not the spontaneous silence that suddenly descends as hungry guests all tuck in to a delicious plate of food. Nor is it the grateful silence as guests push back their plates at the end of the meal in contented, replete satisfaction. This is the deeply uncomfortable silence of embarrassment, of being made to feel petty and stupid. Now, this is a really good reminder about what being in Jesus' presence brings. 
there will be moments of wonder, praise, and thanksgiving. Think about the woman who we thought about a few weeks ago who anoints Jesus' feet with her tears and with her perfume. But even then, she had had to face her own past and her own brokenness. There will be moments of beauty and clarity and wonder. Think of the Last Supper. But even then, we might be quick to squabble with each other or we might be concealing the heart of a traitor. And there will be moments, as here, of confrontation. When Jesus challenges head-on, cherished, oft-worn ideas from our culture, ideas that aren't of his kingdom. And when we are confronted, we might be cross, or we might be perplexed, or we might be uncomfortable and embarrassed. That's okay. And if we're honest, none of us here would really want a discipleship that is all about and only about happy feelings and affirmation of our long-cherished views. So one of the important parts of being church is that we get to do this together. We listen to Jesus in community, as here, as at Alpha, as with small groups and prayer triplets. This passage reminds us that it's highly unlikely that we will dine with Jesus throughout our lives and not find that there are questions that he asks and presuppositions that he challenges that reduce us to silence, sometimes embarrassed, sometimes angry reflection. That is okay, as long as we listen to him. There are two final parts to this passage that we will look at briefly. At first sight, they might seem less substantial. Uh, The first is seemingly some advice about choosing a seat at important social occasions. The second concerning who makes it onto your guest list. Now Luke calls Jesus' comments on places of honor a parable. If you look at verse 7, he calls it a parable. It's not a handy piece of social advice to save us from embarrassment. How do we know that? Because literally, as we've just seen, don't look to Jesus to be saved from embarrassment. He is the world's leading expert. He's happy in love to cause embarrassment in spades. His mission is not to save you or me from embarrassment. Most likely, he's going to put us right in the middle of it. But he does use our appreciation for the potential embarrassment of a high-end social occasion to teach us a deeper truth, and that's what he does here. It's not hard to picture the scene at the wedding feast that Jesus portrays. It's not really so different to weddings nowadays or maybe a business dinner. Jesus' cunning parable is dressed up as social etiquette, and it translates very easily indeed. It's a wedding. Picture the scene. You arrive, and you spot two seats at top table. You know tradition says that they are for the bridal party, but you are well-dressed, you're well-known, you consider yourself important and a long-term family friend. So, Bypassing the seating plan, you march confidently past the other guests and you enjoy that momentary experience of envy and admiration. How important you are to go so directly and confidently to top table. You sit down to survey the scene. Yes, this is where you belong. Ah, here comes the father of the bride, no doubt to welcome us. 
But as he leans into a whisper, you sense something is wrong. Thank you so much for coming, he says. I'm afraid these seats are for my parents. Mum's just in the loo. We've put you on table 13. <laughs> it's, it's, it's right at the back. It's just behind that pillar. Oh, here come mum and dad. Uh, would you mind going to your places now? And so you have to get up, retrieve your coats, avoid all eye contact, push past the very same people before taking your seats with some bored teenage cousins of the groom, knowing that everybody in the room, because this is England, is secretly delighted. <laughs> delighted at your comeuppance. There's nothing we English like more. This is deliberate fast, friends, on Jesus' part. There aren't many of us, I don't think there are any of us, who would confidently usurp a seat at top table at a wedding. That's the whole point. Jesus uses the ridiculous presumption of the story to remind us of a truth. Don't big yourself up. That's God's job. Go to table 13 Hang with the bored teenagers, you might have a great time. It fits with a lot of things that Jesus says elsewhere. He warns us as disciples against seeking the positions of power and prestige. We as people have an innate need, it's twisted and warped, to feel superior to feel better than other people. And we can deploy many different ideas, theories, and experiences to comfort ourselves with the thought that we are better. And Jesus observes that religious ideas are really strong and really good at helping us to feel better than the rest. Religious ideas, keeping to outward lifestyle rules, or being strong on who's in and who's out. These are really successful, powerful ways to stand out in the crowd. But for Jesus, they are just hot air. And they're hot air that's going to deflate and that's going to leave us humiliated. Let's be clear, Jesus is not saying, hate yourself, put yourself down. Jesus is saying, please, friend, Check your ego at the door. Or he's saying, Billy Big Heads, don't go far in the kingdom of God. Or he's saying, choose humility and the way of unassuming smallness as much as you can and as often as you can. That is the point of this farce of a parable. The last verses in this passage are outwardly straightforward, but they are still perplexing, and frankly, they are very easily and commonly ignored. I have no idea whether your social diary is painstakingly planned weeks or months in advance, or whether it is largely spontaneous, but that's where these verses fit. It's those times when you're considering who to be generous to. And Jesus is simply saying, if we only invite our existing friends, family, and well-to-do neighbors to share our lives and our good fortune, we've missed the point. Throwing lavish parties isn't actually generous if we see them simply as a down payment, as the guarantee of a return invite next month or next year, or as a way of cementing our place in the world. 
Real generosity is giving lavishly to people who are overlooked by the majority. People who can't invite you back or pay you back or make it worth your while or make you look good. Now, we are absolutely right to conclude this is not saying don't invite your friends round for dinner because Jesus seems to be doing this endlessly. But it is a challenge in a very Aramaic fashion, both individually and within our family and our friendship groups and as a whole church. If everything we do is for our tribe and our people keeping up and in with the wonderful Joneses, we're not doing it for Jesus, we're doing it for us. And we want to remain, and we want to become even more a church where the overlooked and the forgotten, whether they are near or whether they are far, have the best seats in the house. Amen.